you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to remind you that we're studying this letter because we want to go back to the basics as a church and remind ourselves of what essential Christianity really is. That began in our study of Colossians in, in uh, exalting Christ above all. And it continues in our study of 1 Peter of what it looks like to live as elect exiles and pilgrims in this world for the glory of God. So far we've seen what our everyday relationships with God, with other believers, and with ourselves ought to look like. And most recently, we've been studying what our everyday relationships with the unsaved should be marked by. And the answer is our everyday relationship with the unsaved ought to be marked by doing good. It's the best way I could summarize it. In other words, those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as chapter 2, verse 3 describes, ought to exhibit that same goodness and that same graciousness of the Lord in their interactions with those who are still lost and don't know Christ. And Peter shows us exactly what that looks like, starting in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2 and following, where we've seen so far that we ought to show the goodness and graciousness of the Lord to others by properly submitting to our authorities and by honoring and respecting everyone. This is what sets us apart from those who do not know Christ. We can show an angry, a rebellious, and a disrespectful world the transformation that Christ alone can bring to the human heart by being stunningly submissive, and respectful towards those around us, even those who abuse and disrespect us. No matter who is in government, no matter who is our supervisor, as we saw last week, no matter who we are dealing with, we can underline the gospel and not undermine it by consistently doing what is good. And when we do, when we show enduring goodness, It makes an impact on the lost around us. Peter's touched on this repeatedly throughout this section, and he's about to major on it starting right now. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, he said that we should abstain, if you recall, from sinful passions, and we should keep our conduct among among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, enduring goodness makes an impact. Back in verse 13, he said that as long as they're not commanding us to disobey God, we studied that at length, we should be subject to every human institution. Why? Because verse 15, by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Enduring goodness in the face of adversity makes an impact. Later on in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter is going to say that likewise, believing wives should be subject to their own husbands even if they do not obey the word. Why? Because they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 6, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Enduring goodness in the face of adversity makes an impact. And then shortly after that, in verses 16 through 17 of chapter 3, Peter's going to say that we should handle revilers with gentleness and respect. Why? So that when you are slandered, those who revile you may be put to shame by your good behavior. Enduring goodness 
in the face of adversity makes an evangelistic impact. So this is something that Peter touches on repeatedly in this letter. But the passage that's set before us now in verses 19 through 25 of 1 Peter 2, Peter's going to major on this subject. He's going to major on it. He's going to emphasize the crucial impact that enduring goodness has in the lives of those who are lost. And he does this so that when we pick back up in chapter 3, the topic that we introduced last week, the topic of honoring everyone, and later on even, even than that, the topics of loving the brotherhood and fearing God, we'll now understand the full evangelistic impact of doing so. Because we'll have learned the powerful impact that enduring goodness in the face of adversity has upon those who are lost. So that's what Peter does here in verses 19 through 25. He pauses for a moment, if you will, from his overall outline given in verse 17 on everyday evangelism in order to emphasize directly the impact that enduring goodness has when we steadfastly show it to those who are lost. When we continue to be subject, even when the rest of the world would not. When we continue to be respectful, even when the rest of the world would not. Even when we continue loving the brotherhood, even though most other people would say goodbye to the relationship at that time. When we continue fearing God, even when it seems like the the life God is leading us through hurts. When we keep on showing that enduring goodness, it makes an evangelistic impact in the lives of those who do not know Christ. And Peter's going to reveal for us three impacts of enduring goodness. Three evangelistic impacts that motivate us towards being subject, honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, and fearing God as we ought to as pilgrims here on earth. And here they are. We should strive to show enduring goodness in all of these ways that Peter's going through systematically because first, enduring goodness radiates grace. That's in verses 19 through 20. Second, enduring goodness reflects Jesus. That's in verses 21 through 23. And then third, enduring goodness reaches sinners. It actually makes a difference. And that's in verses 24 through 25. So this is why we should strive as elect exiles to be subject, to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, and to fear God. It's because enduring goodness in the face of adversity radiates grace, reflects Jesus, and reaches sinners. And we're just going to look at the first impact today. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. In context, verse 18, it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and lived righteousness. By His stripes you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the Word of God, who considers our love for His precepts and gives us life according to His steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning you would teach us your word by your spirit. Father, I pray that your word would be taught, that the message would be heard, that it would be understood, and most of all, Father, that it would be believed in an obeying way. Father, we thank you for the new work that you have done in many of the hearts here today in following Jesus, in causing us to be born again. Help us, Father, to learn what it looks like to exhibit that new birth to a lost and dying world. Give us grace so that we might show it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in wanting to underscore the importance of doing good in the face of adversity in all of these relationships that Peter's been working us through, Peter reminds us of the first impact of enduring goodness, and that is that enduring goodness radiates grace. That's in verses 19 through 20. Peter writes there in verse 19 at the beginning, for this is a gracious thing, or literally in the Greek, this is grace. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Notice, Peter expands here in verse 19 from the immediate context that he just gave in verse 18 of slaves and masters, and he states a general principle that can apply to every single one of us in any area of our lives. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So here's the basic situation, and let me know if this sounds familiar to any of you at all who have lived life long enough. You're living your life faithfully as a Christian, and suddenly you are thrust into a season of suffering and affliction for no apparent reason or fault of your own. In fact, maybe someone else was the one who did something wrong, and you're the one that's now having to suffer for it. You are now suffering as a result of someone else's wrongdoing, someone else's wrong actions you are suddenly become a true victim not one of extra not only of external unjust suffering but now also as peter mentions here of internal sorrow and grief and none of this is your fault just like how christ back in luke chapter 4 verse 1 was led directly into the wilderness for 40 days of temptations by the spirit you now find yourself suffering for no apparent wrongdoing of your own. In fact, Peter's context here that he's talking about is maybe you did good, right? Like, maybe you did what was right. Maybe you did what God actually calls for you to do in that circumstance, in that relationship. Maybe you did what was good, but now instead of being supported as someone who did what was right, you're now suffering because you did what was right. You're now having to endure great sorrow of heart because you chose to follow Jesus and fear Him rather than man. Now, 
if you didn't know God, if you weren't born again, context of the beginning of 1 Peter, and if you were having to face all of this, all this external pressure and all this internal pain, all on your own, what would you do? I don't know about you, but I'd throw in the towel. And I'd start throwing a fit. And I'd start complaining about life. I'd grow weary in well-doing. How do I know that? Because when I lose sight of my relationship with God, even now as a believer, I see in myself a tendency towards these very same things. Of throwing in the towel, of throwing a fit, of complaining about life. But guess what? The same God who saves us is the same God who keeps us. And He keeps us the same way that He saves us. And that is by His grace. By His grace. And literally, that's what it says in the Greek, this is grace. Ladies and gentlemen, grace can be observed. Grace can be observed. This is grace. That's what Scripture teaches. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ezekiel describes the new covenant that we receive in Christ Jesus as having lost a heart of stone and received a stone of flesh. Do you think that becomes evident in someone's life? This is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Being born again is evident. It is evident. And God's grace can be observed. It is observed. And Peter gives us one of the ways that grace is observed in a true believer's life. He says, this is grace when through mindfulness of God, that's literally in the Greek, through mindfulness of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Right? This is one of the ways that God, according to chapter 1, verse 5, keeps by His divine power those who belong to Him. He imparts to them. He graces to them. He gifts to them a mindfulness of God in the midst of their sorrows and sufferings. He comes alongside those who are His children and He strengthens them with a mindfulness of who He is. This is how God keeps us and this is how God preserves us. It is through a gift of God-centered mindfulness. And if you're a believer and you've lived life any length at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. In times of hardship or sorrow, the Holy Spirit will often bring to your remembrance the things that you have learned, just like in John 14, 26, and he'll gift to you an acute mindfulness of God and of eternal realities so that you can endure in that hour. I'll never forget after the loss of our daughter being assaulted by great sorrow of soul. And in that moment when I felt most vulnerable to Satan's attack, this scriptural truth came to mind. I'm in Christ. And being mindful of that God-given truth, I had strength to endure. Another, I remember another time when I knew I was going to have to confront an issue that would likely cost me a relationship. Everything in my being just told me to ignore it. It's too costly. Just let it go. And then suddenly this scriptural truth came to mind. I am going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what I do or do not do. And whether I lived out of a fear of man or out of a fear of God. And if I'm still trying to please man, I can't be a servant of Jesus Christ. And so being mindful of that God-given truth, 
I had, I was gifted the strength to endure and do what is right, even though it hurt. See, this is the difference that God makes when you belong to Him. When we are made spiritually alive and born into His family, He keeps us by His grace by giving us, during trials, a mindfulness of Himself through the Scriptures. We don't walk as pilgrims and exiles in this world alone. He is our good shepherd. He travels with us, and He gives us the truths that we need for each new day. As the old Puritans called it, He gives us cordials, for weary pilgrims. And so God prepares for us this. And, and by the way, I want to make this point. God prepares us for this mindfulness in advance. Okay? So He prepares for us in these He prepares us for these trials each and every day as we open up God's Word continually and as we hide it in our hearts. See, we have a part to play in this. It's not like you walk down the street and suddenly, boom, you're made mindful of God and all of these truths that you've never learned before. That's not how it works. That is not how it works. Listen to me. Please listen to me. God can only bring to your mind what you first put into it. Okay? Makes sense, right? We can only be mindful of things that we first put into our minds. <laughs> and so, what, now you have to ask yourself the question then. So what are some of the truths about God that we can make ourselves mindful of in anticipation of trials that are sure to come? Well, here are seven suggestions taken right from 1 Peter, by the way, if you've missed it so far. In preparation for trials, we can make ourselves first mindful of His power. Mindful of His power. 1 Peter 1 verse 5 says this, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, even in the harshest of trials and circumstances, we who belong to Christ will be kept and held fast by His power. So in trials, we should be mindful of God's power. We're not alone. We are held up by the everlasting arms. Second thing that we should be mindful of is God's prize. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, I'm just working through 1 Peter right now, says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various, various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith... More precious than gold, though it is perishes, though it uh, perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, even our pain is for a purpose. There is a reward at the end of it. This world is not all there is. You are not called by God to live your best life now. He takes care of that. You're called to be faithful in following Christ. Even our pain is for a purpose, which leads us to number three. Leads us to number three. We should be mindful of God's plan. That's in chapter 1, verse 11. Peter talks about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see, even for Christ, the Son of God, the King of the universe, right? The Christian life is first suffering, then glory. First the crown, cross, then the crown. And therefore, in the midst of trials, we need to remember that all things are working together for good. As Romans 8.28 says, And in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So in preparation for trials, we should make ourselves mindful of God's power, prize, plan. Next, we should be mindful of God's punishment. And I know I'm flying through this, but you can study this out on your own. I just want to give it to you as a tool. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that we call on Him as Father. And what does our Father do? He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Can you, know, can you imagine how exhausting 
the issue of justice would be if it was up to us. If the issue of justice was left up to the church, but it's not. It's left up to Christ. It's left up to God. We call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. How important is that to remember when we are suffering unjustly? How important is it to remember and to be mindful of the fact that the judge is standing at the door and he is not us? As James 5, 5, 5.9 says, And he has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord in Romans 12, verse 9. Right? We should make ourselves mindful of when we're going through unjust suffering of God's power, God's prize, God's plan, God's punishment. Fifth, be mindful of God's pattern. That's in verse 21 uh, of chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, which we're going to get to next week. Right? It says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example, so that you might follow in his steps. See, we don't have to navigate sorrow, pain, or injustice on our own. We have a pattern that we can look to. We have Jesus to look to and imitate when we go through unjust suffering. And we must remember Him. We must make ourselves mindful of God's power, prize, plan, punishment, pattern. Next, mindful of God's presence. After God is called in 1 Peter 2.25, the shepherd and overseer of your souls... We're then told these words in 1 Peter 3, verse 12. For the eyes, this, these are good words. For the eyes of the Lord are always on the righteous and His ear is ever open to their prayers. See, God doesn't leave us alone in our trials and hardships. Just like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verses 17 through 18, the Lord stands by us as our good shepherd and He strengthens us for the trial so that the gospel might be proclaimed. So we must make ourselves mindful of God's power, prize, plan, punishment, pattern, presence, and finally, mindful of God's passion, His emotion and heart towards us. We see this in 1 Peter 1 and 2, that God saved us in His mercy and goodness, and therefore, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He cares for you. These are things we should remember when we're going through trials. In the midst of our trials, we need to be mindful of that fact. He cares for me. God's power, prize, plan, punishment, pattern, presence, and passion. You could probably add more to that. But that's just 1 Peter. All of these truths, all of these are truths that if we put in our minds, God will make us mindful of when we enter times of suffering and sorrow that we may be able to endure. You see, the time to prepare for trials is not in the trial. The time to prepare for trials is before. In getting to know your God who leads you even through the valley of the shadow of death. And Peter says this, when you do this, right? So when you remain mindful of these truths and endure, this is literally grace. It is grace that brings you to the word of God in advance of trials. It is grace that opens up the Word of God in preparation for trials. And it is grace that reminds you of God's Word as you're going through trials. This is literally grace. This is what saving grace looks like. This is what what essential Christianity really looks like. 
It looks like having the supernatural ability given by the Spirit and the Word to remember God in the midst of unjust sorrows and afflictions and to be able to endure in showing faith, in showing obedience, in showing respect, in showing subjection for the glory of God. That is grace. That's grace. And there are so many biblical examples. You see this in Job, don't you? You see this in Joseph. But Peter's going to mention next week, you see this preeminently in Jesus. This is grace. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's, that's grace. That's divine enablement. That's divine power. You want to show the power of God to a lost and dying world? Show enduring goodness. Show enduring goodness in these four ways that Peter's laying out. And so Peter's telling us that if you want to live a life of compelling goodness before the unsaved world, then you've got to learn to not complain or grow bitter or disrespectful, but you've got to learn to look to God, to look to Christ and endure. This is saving grace. And I want to encourage you, as an observer of the body of Christ this morning, when you see someone who is demonstrating the supernatural ability to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly because they have a mind that is fixed on God, that's, that's when you know that God exists. And that's when you know that that person knows God. They've got the grace of salvation because look at their focus, look at their faith, look at their fortitude. Every other person would be looking at their circumstances, but they have their eyes fixed on Christ. It's because Jesus is real and he is pouring his power into them. They belong to God. So Peter starts off with this principle. Basic principle. I wanted to take my time so you understood it. This is grace. When through mindfulness of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then Peter applies that principle in verse 20 to the context at hand, to the context of servitude, of work relations. He says in verse 20, for what credit is it? Okay, so ask yourself the question, what benefit is it? What good comes from it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? The answer is nothing good at all. Nothing good at all. There is no virtue in responding to right discipline with stoic resolve. I know that. I'm a parent that has, that has been a sinful child, and I have sinful children. Right? There's no benefit at all. You know that, right? When you, are sin, when you sin in life and are beaten for it, when you sin and are punished for it, you should be broken. You should be sorrowful. You should be repentant. You should be, dare I say, emotional. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, that godly grief produces such earnestness, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what self-punishment. That sounds pretty emotional. Anything less than that is just vindictive obstinance. Determined rebellion. And those characteristics have nothing to do with saving faith. Because God's given you a heart of what? Flesh. Those who know saving grace respond to discipline over sin by submission. And by the way, parents, remember this principle in your discipline. This is kind of an aside. Free lesson, right? We're not to beat our children when they sin. I know the word beaten is here, but I'm applying a principle, basic principle. 
we are to discipline our children. We are to discipline them. Discipline them, and if loving discipline is to produce any lasting fruit of righteousness, Scripture tells us it must be painful rather than pleasant, and it must be painful enough to break one's obstinate determination to sin. Your discipline, dare I say, must make your children emotional. For what credit is it? What good is it if, when you sin and are punished for it, you endure? Answer, no good at all. That's true for children, and it's just as true for adults. (laughs) Nothing changes. Until there's brokenness, there can be no benefit. So believers, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, that is of no advantage to you, or to the salvation of the lost, or to the glory of Christ. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But, here's the other side, if when you do not sin, but when you do good, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Right? This is grace with God. So here's the immediate situation Peter was addressing 2,000 years ago. All right? And then we'll work it up to our principle today. 2,000 years ago, you're a Christian servant. You don't have the option to turn in your resignation papers and find a new job. You're stuck with the master you have until... Perhaps one day you can save up enough money to purchase your freedom in the Roman Empire, right? You're stuck there for the foreseeable future. And you're being unjustly treated and unfairly used by your earthly master. Maybe he's disciplined you for someone else's mistake that wasn't your own. Like when I got spanked one time and it was really my sister's fault. I still can't get over that, right? (laughs) Maybe, Maybe your supervisor is making you, back then, your master is making you work too many hours. Maybe as a Christian servant 2,000 years ago, maybe he wasn't paying you enough wages for your labor and your skill set. So how do you show God's saving grace in that situation, the situation that you can't get out of at least 2,000 years ago as a slave? What, What do you do then? Peter's response is this. You don't complain. You don't speak against your master. You don't protest. You patiently show enduring goodness, respect, and subjection in the face of injustice. It doesn't mean you don't speak the truth, but you also accept the consequences that if you do. As Peter says later in chapter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil. We're reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. We've been called to show graciousness and blessing, the same graciousness and blessing that we've received from God. That's our calling as believers. Let the rest of the world show all those other emotions. We are dedicated to showing grace and blessing towards those who are lost. As Jesus said over in Luke 6, 22-23, and a lot of people walked away after he gave this message, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. So that's what saving grace looks like. This is how you show yourself as a child of the Father who's in heaven. When we walked as enemies of God, 
reviling him, spurning him, disrespecting him, how did he treat us? With the greatest love, the greatest grace, and the greatest salvation mind and heart of men and angels could ever conceive. This is what saving grace looks like. It looks like showing supernatural enduring goodness in the face of unjust suffering. And by the way, this is what saving grace has always looked like. This is what saving grace always looks like. You can never separate in Scripture saving grace from earthly suffering. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Saving grace is always accompanied by earthly suffering suffering let me prove it to you romans eight seventeen says of true believers if you're children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ sounds pretty good right provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him in other words how do you know that you belong to christ and that you're walking the same path of eternal life in which christ blazed on our behalf you walk the same path in which christ walked which was a which was a path right to the cross and then through the cross to glory If you're following Christ, you're going to take that same path. The only people who will be glorified with Jesus and enter into eternal salvation, according to Romans 8, 17, are those who who love Christ enough, who believe in Him enough, who have been so transformed by Christ through the new birth that they are also willing to suffer with Him here on earth. Suffering is a characteristic of saving grace. Acts 14, 22 says this, says that Paul and Barnabas taught the disciples saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? The path that leads pilgrims to the kingdom of heaven is not your best life now. It is not a path of ease and comfort, of material prosperity and comfort and joy and creating utopia on earth. It is a path that leads through tribulations in life, not just a few, many, many tribulations. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you don't desire to live a godly life and you want to live just like the world, you'll probably have a pretty comfortable life. Straight into hell. But if you want eternal life, then you follow Jesus each and every day. You take up your cross daily and you follow Him. And that path leads to eternal life. It's part of the Christian life. Philippians 1.29 states this, For to you it has been granted for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Did you notice that word? The same divine grace that gives you salvation and enables you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life is the same divine grace that leads you into and through suffering. God literally graces you with suffering. Suffering is part of the essential Christian life. It is part of Christianity 101. We're going to learn out why in, in the future in First Peter. But suffering is a part of the essential Christian life. And submission is also. They usually go hand in hand, by the way. Suffering and submission. Peter, our author, you know, needed to learn this lesson, by the way, didn't he? Remember who's writing this letter. Sometimes it'll blow your mind when you think about it, right? Remember the account in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? Peter stands right up. He's like, I got this one, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He speaks a direct revelation from God the Father. Boom! 
regarding who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus is like, man, man has not revealed this to you, but your Father who is in heaven and is upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, this knowledge of who I am. And so Jesus is pretty pumped up, right? Well, then he starts telling him, but I want you to know something. If I am the Christ, if I am who you say I am, then this is according to Scripture what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go into Jerusalem and I'm going to be taken into the hands of sinful men and they're going to kill me. And what was Peter's immediate response to that message of, yes, I am that glorious king, but first suffering before, before glory. What was Peter's immediate response? He said, far be it from you, Lord, it shall never happen to you. You can live, Christ. You can live, Jesus, for the glory of God and not have to go through suffering, not have to submit to this injustice. And Jesus had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're still thinking like man and not like a servant of God. See, this is what makes 1 Peter so powerful. Because at one point, Peter was a man that ran from suffering. And he was a man that ran from submission. Yet something happened to him. Can I say, he was born again. He received the Spirit. He understood Christ and his example. And now in this letter, we see Peter had learned to bow beneath that principle. Suffering is part of the Christian life, and so is proper submission. Peter needed to learn that lesson. So do we. So do we. The way that we reflect God's transforming grace in this world is by demonstrating enduring goodness even in the face of unjust suffering. So this is the first reason why we as Christians ought to live lives of proper subjection, respect, love, and reverence before the eyes of the unseen, uh, of unsaved world. It's because enduring goodness radiates the transforming grace of God found in Christ alone. So these are powerful instructions. This is a powerful impact. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And I just have to leave you with this one phrase. I have to. Verse 21. Beginning of verse 21. So powerful. For this you have been called. This you have been called. Beloved, we're called to this. We are called to keep on doing what is good even if we have to endure suffering for it. Don't run from such a life. Run to it. It is your calling. Peter has already said back in chapter 2, verse 9, that we are called in salvation out of darkness into God's marvelous light. He says later in chapter 5, verse 10, that we are called in salvation to God's eternal glory in Christ. We like that and we like the other one. But here we're told that Peter, by Peter that we're also called in salvation to show enduring goodness even if we have to suffer for it. To keep on showing those four things that Peter is walking us through. Just as much as being called out of darkness into light is a part of a normal Christian experience, and just as much as being called into God's eternal glory is a part of the normal Christian experience, so also being called to show enduring goodness and suffer for it is a part of the normal Christian experience also. So I encourage you, don't run from such a life. If you lose your life, you'll find it. Run to it, it's your calling. 
It's the will of God. We are called to this. I just want to ask this question. As it was asked of me this past week. What good do you know of right now that you ought to be doing but are not doing it because you're afraid of the consequences? What good ought you to be doing right now but you're not doing because you're afraid of the consequences? What act of repentance? What act of confession? What act of obedience? What act of faith? In the context of our passage, what act of humility? What act of subjection? What act of respect are you being called to show that you're not showing right now? What good are you in danger of shrinking back from this morning because of fear of suffering, mockery, and discipline? I'd encourage you, don't run from it. Run to it as your calling in Christ Jesus. And as we'll see next week, Christ is waiting for you there. You take that step, it's exactly a step he's already been in before. He's with you. So be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, show enduring goodness in the midst of suffering, for this reflects God's transforming grace before a closely watching world. We'll have to look at the next two evangelistic impacts for enduring goodness next week, but for now... This is the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19-20, through 20, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience towards the fervent care of one another until all suffering and sorrow is past and we stand triumphant before our God in glory at last. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And Father, we thank you that the same grace that saves us is the grace that keeps us, and we call, we ask for you to richly pour it out on us in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, this week to not throw in the towel of doing good. Help us not to throw a fit. Help us not to complain Help us not to fall into disrespect or dishonor of others. Help us not to develop a rebellious heart. Father, cultivate in us a heart of subjection and a heart of respect, the very heart of Christ, so that we might be able to show the goodness and graciousness of the Lord to those who are around us who are lost. Make this our mission. Give us grace, Father, to learn from You as we look to Christ so that we might have the mind of Christ as we go through trials this week. May we be faithful in Your Word and may You make us faithful in life for Your honor and glory. In Jesus' name.